Okay, let's try this again. You know, it's amazing, these things, these electronic things, they have to have batteries in them. And we opened it up, and there was no batteries in it. So my wife says, I wish I could figure out how to do that to you at home. Just turn the battery, pull the batteries. So good to see you all this evening. This evening, we start a new series. Last week, we finished up our survival guide series. And uh, you can find the audio for that at bretleggg.com and hit the resource tab. And you'll find the audio on all of those resources, uh, except session number four. We had problems with the recorder, so you're only going to get like the first 20 minutes of that session. But all the slides should be there, so you should be able to find all of that there. But tonight, we start this new series called When God Says Yes and you say no. Now, probably no one in this room has ever done that. But me, yeah, I've done that. And, and this series is going to be different than the last one. The last series, we took kind of like everyday stuff and brought scripture to it. This series is just going to be the other way around. We're going to take scripture and bring everyday stuff into it. So it's going to be a little bit different. This is going to be a little bit more like Bible study, especially this evening. There's a lot of background and foundation we need to lay this evening so that this book makes more sense to you. Uh, But we've got to to do that. So I think you're going to like this series. I really do. I, I need you to hang in there with me this evening. Like I said, there's a lot of background we've got to lay. But I think you're going to like this series a lot. Uh... Let me start this way. How many of you have or do or have at one time journaled? How many of you are journalers? We have some journalers in here, in the room. Uh, Have you done it for, how many of you have done this for a long time, journaled for a long time? A few of you, a few of you have done it for a long time. Tell me what you get out of journaling, just really quickly. No, if you're not a journaler, you can't answer that question. <laughs> yeah, so it's a chronology kind of thing. Anybody else, if you journal, why? So journaling actually helps you learn about God? Okay, okay. Yes. You can express yourself and your thoughts. Yes. I think that the, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions in the context of the time that we write them. Right, right. So you can put everything that you're feeling or thinking in the context of what's going on in the time. And like somebody else said, like Norm said, you can look back and say, okay, that's when that happened. So it kind of gives you a chronology. I, uh, there's all kinds of journals. And, so, and some of you, your journals are probably different. But there are all kinds of journals. There's journals that are diaries. I can't get anything to work this evening. There we go. There's journals that are diaries, you know, which is just what it says. You're just, every day you're writing down your thoughts, feelings, what's happened that day, what you're planning, et cetera, et cetera. There's prayer journals where you write out prayers or at least make a list of prayers that you want to be praying for. So there's prayer journals that you can do. There are quiet time journals. This is what I got out of my quiet time this morning or tonight or whenever you do it. This is what I feel like God was saying to me, speaking to me. There's even video journals. Video journals where people just 
whip out their phone, take a video journal, and they kind of chronologically go through their day, their week, their year that way. There are, of course, electronic journals. Some people keep them on their phones or their iPads or on their computers. Uh, and, and then some people, I mean, some people just do it old-fashioned way. You carry a notebook of some sort and, and journal with. Since we're studying, what we're going to be studying is a, a journal of sorts. So since we're doing that, I wanted to show you some samples of some journals before we get started. Because, like I said, what we're going to be studying is a journal of sorts. So let me show you some samples of some journals. Here's Albert I a copy from Albert Einstein's journal. This is an excerpt from Albert Einstein's journal. I think it's interesting that he's put a fish in there. And it uh, looks like a shark. And so I... I went to read what he was, and it's in a different language, so you can't read it. Uh, but this is a sample of Einstein's journal. Here's a sample of Mark Twain's journal. Got all kinds of names. Some of them are crossed out, some of them are not. We don't know if these are friends, if these are enemies, if these are debtors. We, we don't know. But that's a segment from his journal. Thomas Edison's journal which is a little more of a, just a to-do list, things to do, which makes sense from Edison because he had a million and one things he was doing. Uh, the next journal entry I want to set up for you. It's, a, it's an entry from Theodore Roosevelt's journal. And uh, I want to give you some background before I show you the entry. Uh, I'll just read a few snippets from this. It says, The blow of his father's death was softened later when Roosevelt fell deeply in love with Alice Lee of Boston. And then they were engaged on Valentine's Day, 1880. So his father passes away, and all of a sudden he finds this woman, and they get engaged on Valentine's Day. Later on it says, everything seemed to be going well for Theodore Roosevelt. Along with his success in the state assembly, Alice was expecting their first child, and then... February 1884, so what is that, just four years after they first got engaged on Valentine's Day, uh, Theodore Roosevelt received word that his mother, Minnie, was ill. And then on February 12th, a telegram announced the birth of his little baby. And as he received congratulations from his friends from the assembly on the birth of his baby, a second telegram arrived, and Alice, too, was ill. So now his mom and his wife are both ill. And so he rushes home, and uh, Alice is dying, of, his, his wife is dying of kidney failure. And so for the next 16 hours, Roosevelt goes from one room to the other. From sitting with his mom to sitting with his wife. Sitting with his mom, sitting with his wife. His mom died early in the morning, and his wife passed away later on the same day. And it was on February the 14th, Valentine's Day. So now, look at his journal entry. The light has gone out of my life. One big X on the life has gone out of my life. That's a heartbreaking journal entry. Let me show you one more. This is Marilyn Monroe's journal. It's really kind of hard to read, but there's 
about the middle of the second page, it says something like this. I haven't had faith in life, meaning, or reality. Whatever it is, or whatever happens, there's nothing to hold on to. It's kind of a heartbreaking journal entry. So, like you, some of you said, a journal entry, a lot of times journals show you what's going on internally, what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your life, what your mindset is like. I've had kind of a sort of hit or miss relationship with journals, actually. Uh, really, I've only taken two good stabs at journaling. Once was when my oldest child was a teenager, and it was my way of getting through those teenage years. It was either journal or kill her, and I felt like journaling was probably the more politically correct thing to do. And uh, like I've told you before, I still have those, and I need to burn them before I die so they don't go through them. Uh, but the second I shot at journaling was more of a Bible reading journal. I have at the house about five or six of these. They're all the same. And what I did was I took one and opened up to Genesis 1 and just started reading. And so they're entries of what I got out of each chapter of the Bible. Most of them are just single chapters. Now, when you get into Leviticus, we kind of lump some of those chapters together. But, uh, and there's, like I said, there's five or six of these. It goes through the whole Bible. And it was a great way for me to kind of process what I was reading, take a 30,000-foot view. But other than that, I haven't done a whole lot of journaling. That's just kind of how I did it. Um, but like I said, journals help you get on the inside. And we're going to be studying Jonah, which is pretty much like a journal entry, really, when you read through it. But if you, I mean, think about it for a minute. If you could read a journal on any biblical character, who would you want to read their journal? Which journal would you want to read? Okay, one at a time. What? Peter. Job. Well, that sounds like a depressing journal right there. Say, Daniel. Say it loud. I need to turn up my hearing aids. David. To read David's journal would be interesting. Jesus. I think we have it, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting to think of what you would learn if you could really kind of dip into the, the journal of biblical characters. So tonight, we're going to look at the book of Jonah. Or we're going to start looking at the book of Jonah tonight. And Jonah reads very much like journal. It really does. And uh, to see this, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to take a passage of scripture, a section of Jonah... And I'm going to give it to you as if it was a journal entry. I'm going to give you a fictitious journal entry. Then we'll go back and read the text behind that fictitious entry. Well, I can just show you here. Let's see. I'm going to look at Jonah. I'm going to give you the entry. Then we're going to go back and look at the text. And then we're going to take apart that text because there's just tons of stuff in there that you and I... I mean, you can get a lot out of the book of Jonah and know nothing about it, but when you really dig into what's there, all of a sudden Jonah really kind of comes alive for you. And then we're going to look at takeaways. So we're going to look at biblical text first, and then the practical takeaways second. Last series, we did it in reverse. We looked at practical takeaways and brought the text into it. 
So this time around, we're going to start with the text and bring the takeaways into it. And uh, let me give you a little heads up. Tonight, I got to lay some foundation for you. I got to lay some, some basics and some background so that this book makes more sense to you. And so it's not going to be what you're used to from the last series. But hang in there with me because all of a sudden, all the pieces will fall into place. And then it will not only light up your knowledge of Jonah, it will light up your knowledge of yourself and your own walk. So let's look at the first journal entry. This is a fictitious journal entry from Jonah's journal. And it would say something like this. I can't believe it. I can't believe he would warn them after all they've done. They don't deserve a warning. And why involve me? He knows how I feel about them. I don't want anything to do with them, nor do I want anything to do with helping them. They made their bed. Now, let's look at the text behind that. Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Jonah 1, 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now before we go any further, we've got to look at some issues with the book of Jonah. There's issues that people have with the book of Jonah. And here they are. There's some historical issues with the book of Jonah. There's allegorical issues with the book of Jonah. Is it an allegory or is it not? Is it a parable? Is it not? So let's look at the historical. Here's where the historical issues come from. In the book of Jonah, you read about the king of Nineveh. You see that in chapter 3, verse 6. The problem is Nineveh was a city. It was not a nation. It's Nineveh didn't have a king. Okay, So that's one issue that people will bring up. Another issue is the size of the city. When you compare the size of the city that Scripture seems to give us with archaeological site of Nineveh, they don't seem to match up. So that's another thing that people will bring up and say, hey, here's a problem with Jonah. Then there's the obvious, the whole idea of a fish swallowing a man and keeping him alive. And some people will take issue with that. That does not seem like a historical fact. It seems like a historical fiction to some. And then there's this issue in, towards the end where this gourd grows up seemingly in the course of a day and uh, grows up big enough and quick enough to shade Jonah. And then just the book of Jonah itself. There are 12 different miracles mentioned in just 48 verses. So it all seems a little heavy-handed to some people. And they'll say, this doesn't sound like his history. It sounds more like fable. And then... There's the, the allegorical issues. Is this an allegory? Some people say it can't be history because of these things, so it's got to be an allegory. But in an allegory, every part of the allegory matches something else. It matches the point you're trying to make or the principles you're trying. And that doesn't work in the book of Jonah. Not everyone matches. So maybe it's a parable. But the problem with that is parables don't typically mention historical figures. And Jonah mentions historical figures. And on top of that, Jesus mentions the book of Jonah as if it's historical. Jesus calls it up as if it's source material. And so these are the issues that people will bring to the book of Jonah. 
So I just, I'm going to give you my stance before we get started. And my stance is this. I'm taking it at face value. I'm taking it at face value. One of the reasons I do that is if you don't, then you have to decide what's face value and what's not. And I'm just not that smart. I, that's too many things to start guessing about. So I'm just going to take it at face value. You can do with Jonah what you want. But the thing that swings it for me is when Jesus starts mentioning Jonah. You know, because if Jesus is a great teacher, he doesn't lie. So if he's going to mention Jonah and mention Jonah as if Jonah was a real historical figure, then I'm going to have to go with that. So, so that's where we're going. That's the stance I'm taking. So we've looked at this fictitious journal entry. We've looked at the text. Now let's start taking apart some things here. Let's take apart stuff about Jonah himself. Let's look at some facts. The name Jonah means dove. Means dove. I mean, it's really kind of sweet sounding, isn't it? But it's not really. It's not really that sweet sounding. In fact, the word, the same word is used in Hosea, Hosea 7.11, which sounds like a quick stop, doesn't it? 7.11, Hosea. Listen to what Hosea 7.11 says. Ephraim is, is like a dove. If you look up the language, it's the same word for Jonah. They're the same word. Jonah and dove are the same word. Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt and going to Assyria. So when Jonah means dove, it's not necessarily a compliment. Right? It means silly. It means without sense, without discernment. All right? It means being naive. So Jonah was also the son of Amittai. Now, Amittai is the word that means my true one. So, and, and, and names are very important in Scripture. So you have my true one giving birth to someone who has little sense, so to speak. And, and you, see that you see this mentioned in other places. Uh, we'll, I'll show you a passage in just a minute. And he was from a place named Gath Hefer which just sounds like a place you don't want to be from, right? Gath Hefer. Where are you from? I'm from Gath Hefer. Uh, it was about two and a half miles northeast of Nazareth. Let me see if I can show you on the map here. It's really hard to see, but if you'll see that last legend at the very top, that's Gath Hefer. So it's like way up there. And considering that Jonah was coming from Israel, which is about halfway down on the map, maybe a little bit further, it's quite a trek for him. It's a big trek for him. Now, we know about Gath Pepper because you can find it in 2 Kings 14.25. I don't think I've got that up there. Uh, it says, he, meaning Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord of the God of Israel, which he spoke, listen to this, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. So the historians in First and Second Kings 
are already pegging Jonah as a real life deal with a place, with a lineage, with everything. So Jonah prophesied during the golden age of Israel. And this is important. Everything was going right for Israel. They were on the, on the upsweep. They were riding high. Everything was going good. And he prophesied that their boundaries would just continue to increase. Again, it was a golden age. It's like when the stock market's really high and everybody's just doing great. This is how Israel was. But here's some fascinating things about Jonah that kind of turn the page for us. Jonah is written in the third person. Jonah doesn't say, I went down to Joppa. I got swallowed by a fish. It's always the third person. Now, some people take issue with that, but Moses wrote in the third person. I mean, you look at the Pentateuch, the first five, five, uh, first five books of the scripture, they're all written in third person. So that's not such a big deal, other than feels like he's not wanting to own something here. Also, this is interesting. Jonah is the only prophet to run from God. The only prophet who runs from God. Uh, now, I know we're not very far into this yet, but why would Jonah run? He didn't want to go. That's a good, yep, didn't want to go. Any idea why he didn't? We're going to get into this later. I'm just seeing how far ahead of me you are. He didn't like the people. No, and that's an understatement. Yeah, they were cruel and unusual. We're going to hear about that this evening. There's a lot of reasons we're going to find out why Jonah didn't want to go, and some of them are, not, are going to sound kind of good, actually. Uh, but he's the only prophet that ran from God. It seems like a prophet would want to enter a city, would want to be evangelistic, but not Jonah. Actually, he probably thought he was being pretty patriotic. This is Israel's enemy. Nineveh is the enemy of Israel. And so if he doesn't warn them, what does he think is going to happen? God's going to wipe them out. So it's kind of a patriotic move on his part. Also, Jonah is one of four prophets mentioned by Jesus. Jesus mentions Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jonah. Which is really interesting. That's kind of a heavy crowd to be running with. Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jonah, you know. But he mentions Jonah. And this book is interesting from this standpoint. Now, we know Jonah's a prophet, but this book is more about the prophet than the prophecy. You read the other prophets in Scripture, and it's about their prophecy. It's about what they had to say. And they're usually long and involved prophecies. This is about the prophet, not really the prophecy. And it's a short book. It's a short book, unlike some of the others. You know, you look at the book of Isaiah, it's massive. The book of Jonah, it's very small. Why? Because it's not about the prophecy, it's about the prophet. You're not learning from the prophecy, you're learning from the prophet. 
And also, he went out from Israel to win Assyria. Okay, which is really kind of strange. He goes out from Israel to warn his enemies, the Assyrians. Usually prophets warn Israel about the enemies. Usually a prophet is telling Israel, hey, if we don't turn around and fly right, then our enemy Assyria is going to come in and overrun us. Jonah is completely different. It's like Jonah turns everything on its head. Jonah actually is a picture of God's grace. And his desire to warn others of judgment. And and his desire to to bring resurrection. This is what Jonah is about. How we're called as a people of God to warn about the judgment that comes. It's a very evangelistic book, if you will. So that kind of takes apart Jonah a little bit. Now, and like I said, we're just laying groundwork. We're going to get into the heavy-duty stuff in just a minute. But let's take apart Nineveh. Let's look at Nineveh for just a few minutes. And let's look at some facts about Nineveh. Nineveh was 550 miles from Samaria. That's about a month's journey. You know, so if God came to you and said, I want you to go to Chicago, which is farther than 500 miles, but I want you to go and I want you to walk. You know? He's telling, not only is he telling Jonah he wants him to go somewhere he doesn't want to go to, people he doesn't like, but he's going to have to walk for a month to get there. Let's see if I have a picture of it. See the red circle in the bottom left? That's Samaria. See the red circle up in the upper right? That's Nineveh. That's how far God was asking him to go. You know, which to do something you don't want to do to start with is probably a little irritating, right? Another kind of quirky little fact was Nineveh was built by Nimrod. You can go to this passage, Genesis 10, 9, and 12, and you'll see Nimrod built all kinds of cities early on in creation. And one of them was Nineveh. Nineveh was surrounded by an outer wall and an inner wall. I mean, it was fortified. And the walls were 100 feet high and 50 feet wide. They were massive. And then finally, Nineveh is described as that great city. Now, some of that's because the population of Nineveh was great. Some of it had to do with their resources. They had great resources, great power. They also had great sin. And and it was the largest city in the, the area apart from Babylon. Babylon was larger. Other than that, Nineveh was the largest city. Okay? So that's, that's some things about Nineveh. Let's, let's look at some fascinating things about Nineveh. And then we'll get all this under our belt and then we'll launch into what happens. One of the fascinating things about Nineveh is God says it's a wicked city. He says it's just wicked. Listen to it again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up 
before me. For their evil has come up before me. That phrase, come up, it's like filling up to the brim. So they're not just evil, they're full to the brim with evil. Full to the brim with evil. Uh, listen to this. If you go to Layman's commentary in Jonah, and Jonah's talking about the Assyrians, uh, the, the commentary's talking about the Assyrians, listen to what it says. It says, the king of Assyria left lots of tablets, okay? He left a lot of clay tablets that could be survived, that survived and could be surveyed. And so here's some what the tablets say about the king of Assyria. He says, talking about uh, the towns that fell before him. He says, I destroyed them, tore down the walls, burned the towns with fire. I caught the survivors and impaled them on stakes in front of their towns. I slew their warriors with a sword. In the moat of the town, I piled them up. I covered the wide plains with the corpses of their fighting men. I dyed the mountains with their blood like red wool. I tore out the tongues of those who slanderous mouths that uttered blasphemies. I smashed alive and fed their corpses, cut into small pieces to the dogs and the pigs and the vultures. This is the Assyrians. This is the Ninevites. This is who God is telling Jonah to go talk to. You get an idea why Jonah was not in favor of this, right? You know, it's, you know, it's like telling Jonah to go kiss Hitler on the mouth. It's just wrong to Jonah. It's just awful. But look at what happens before Jonah arrives. This is important. But before Jonah arrives in Nineveh, here are some things that happen. Nineveh was focused on their inner stability. They weren't focused on growing and, and expanding outward. They were focused on their inner stability, which says that there was, they were unstable to start with, right? And then they'd experienced two plagues six years apart and a total eclipse of the sun, and they equated all of these to divine anger. And so they were primed to receive God's message. They were unstable. They thought for sure that God's anger was upon them. I mean, they were ripe for Jonah to go in and give this message. But the problem wasn't the Assyrians. It wasn't the Ninevites. It was the messenger. That was the problem. So, two verses. Let's do some takeaways, and then we'll go a little bit further into the book. Takeaway number one. God longs to reach everyone even if we don't. You know who they are in your heart and mind. But God still longs to reach them. Think of the person who's most offended you, most hurt you, most is repugnant to you. And God loves them and wants to reach them as much as he wants to love and reach you. It's hard to fathom, but it's the way it is. And this is one of the things that God was trying to get across to Jonah. And he's trying to get across to us too. The people you don't like, I'm still for. I still want as much good for them as I want for you. First takeaway. Second takeaway. When God calls, it's a command, not a consideration. 
When you tell your children to do something and they say, I'll think about it. Yeah, right? Immediately you see red. You know. I had a granddaughter that was having a meltdown the other day and she'd locked herself in her closet. And uh, my wife went back to check on her and say, will you let me in? And she goes, no, I won't because I don't want to. It was everything I could do to keep from going back and pulling that door off the hinges, right? But we treat God's commands as if there's something for us to consider. And uh, we'll find out that Jonah didn't consider very long, but he did not realize that it was a command. It's so easy to forget that God is ruler and master. It's so easy to think, I got this, this is my life, I can chart the course, I can do this, and forget it's not our life. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We are here to carry out his life. It's just easy to forget that and think that what we have is ours. Uh, And here's the deal, if we choose differently than what God calls us to, we're only prolonging the matter. You know, there used to be an old commercial years ago. It was a car commercial, a car repair commercial. It basically said, pay us now or pay us later. And that's kind of how this is. And Jonah figured this out the hard way, but he figured this out. Uh, another takeaway, last takeaway, and then we'll move on into the text. God disturbs in order to disperse. God disturbs in order to disperse. Look at Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I know you're comfy. You have all your family here. You've got cattle and tents and you've you got a home. You've got everything. But I want you to pick it all up and move. And not only that, I want you to go to a place that's not going to be yours. You're going to be a, a vagabond, a trespasser in the land, so to speak. God disturbs to disperse. Did the same thing with the Tower of Babel. Remember People, God said, fill the whole earth, populate the whole earth. And then they decided they would gather there in this town, build a great monument to their greatness, and they just kind of huddle up and stay together. Which seems to make sense because there's strength and safety in numbers, but it was not what God called them to do. And so what did he do? Yeah, he dispersed them. He changed their language so they couldn't live together. He disrupted to disperse. You can see the same thing with the church in the book of Acts. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But early in the book of Acts, they were huddled up in Jerusalem. So God brings this great persecution that scatters them. God will do that. Um, I remember God had called me into ministry And I got really comfortable because I knew I couldn't go right away because I needed to finish a bachelor's degree because you can't go to seminary without a bachelor's degree. So I was finishing my bachelor's degree at night and I just got comfortable being there. I was working in the church. I was on staff as a bivocational minister and we we had kids and we had friends and it just got really comfortable. And before long, I had finished my undergrad and could have gone on to seminary and decided, you know what, I can take just some seminary extension classes while I'm here. And I can just stay here and take ex- extension classes. And so 
I needed to be dispersed. <laughs> and so one Sunday afternoon, I was an associate pastor and student minister, and my students said, come play basketball with us. I'd been putting them off for a long time because I'm just not a sports guy anyway, and I'm not that coordinated. But the problem was I, the gym in our church was like right on the other side of my driveway because we lived in the parsonage. And so one Sunday I said, okay, I'm coming. And so I finished lunch and was headed out the door to go over to the gym, and my wife said, remember, you're not a young man anymore. To which I went, <laughs> 20 minutes later, my students were carrying me back in the house. I had rolled my ankle, fractured my ankle, uh, and all of a sudden I decided, you know what? I think it may be time to move on. <laughs> and I had spent so much time on my back because I couldn't get up, and I was reading and praying and God used it to disperse me on the seminary. God disperses us. He disturbs us in order to disperse us. Okay, that's just verse 1 and 2. So we're going to have to hustle if we're going to do this in five weeks. So let's look at the next one. Let me give you this fictitious journal entry, and then we'll look at the text. Okay, here's the fictitious entry. I couldn't do it. He knows how I feel about this and how I feel about them. But he kept pressing. Everything I saw, everything I heard, kept pushing me to do it. So I decided that I had to get away from it. From him. I found a ship that would take me far away for a while. It cost me, but... A change of scenery might just be the perfect distraction. Surely he can use someone else. Any of that ring true to you? You ever felt some of that stuff? Or am I the only guy in the room that does? Let's look at the text. Just one verse. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3. And here's what it said. I actually didn't put the text in the screen, did I? Let's pull it up over here. That's when I left out. I usually put the text in there. Hang on just a minute. I'll get there. Jonah 1.3. Here it is. But Jonah. Now remember. Let's go back and read the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. Key, key statement. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away from the presence of the Lord. There's a lot in just that one verse. There's a ton in just that one verse. Let's take apart some things in that verse. First of all, Jonah goes completely the opposite direction. I'm talking about a 180-degree opposite. I mean, he can't be more blatant than that. Look at this map. I know it's hard to read. The circle on the, the right, that is where Jonah is. Way up to the far right corner is where he's supposed to go. 
all the way to the left, almost on the left-hand border there, that circle, that's Tarshish. Jonah doesn't only go in the opposite direction blatantly. He's going as far as he can in the opposite direction. I mean, it's not, it can't get more brazen than that. Completely the opposite direction. And then listen to what he says. He says he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. He's fleeing from the presence of the Lord. That word means the front or the head or the face. He's fleeing from God. Not just from what God wants him to do, but he's fleeing from God. Let's look at some facts on Joppa. Joppa was about 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's a seaport. And uh, it's often run by like the Phoenicians. And, and there were times when the Phoenicians had an alliance with the Israelites. And, and so it was a safe place for him to go. And he, he goes down on the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa. And if you remember... Joppa is where Solomon had all the cedar brought in for the temple. So it's a, it's a busy, it's an active seaport. And he finds a ship. He finds a ship. Now, let me give you a picture of Phoenician ships around that time, because this would be something like what he was boarding. It's not necessarily your Disney cruise liner, right? Uh, this is the kind of ship he would have boarded. And they would have been traversing all across the Mediterranean in this little ship. And the scripture tells us that he went down into the ship. He would have gone down where the tar cargo is. So those are some facts about this passage. Now let's look at something fascinating. The key word here is down. Down. He goes down to Joppa. From Israel, the elevation, and he goes down to the sea, down to Joppa. Then he goes down to the ship. And then he goes down into the bottom of the ship. And later we'll see he goes down into a fish. And then he goes down to the bottom of the sea. Jonah's tra trajectory is down. You just see it over and over and over. It's like God is just kind of drilling this in with this kind of beat. Does that, what's that say to you? Yeah, and, and, and why is it that when we decide we're going to do something different than what God wants us to do, why does the trajectory continue to go down? Any ideas? I'm sorry. Trying to hide? Because we're outside of his will. It's the opposite of perfect. 
Sometimes you just get hardened. You just get callous. You just, you know, the more you disobey, the easier it is to disobey. That same granddaughter I was telling you about, I said the other day, she had done something. I said, why do you do this? She says, because I can. (laughs) Well, you're right, but, right? You know, we just, the more you do the opposite, the easier the opposite is. And then the easier it is. And, and so this is the fascinating thing in this one little verse. It's just this trajectory that goes down. Uh, all right, let's do some takeaways. I'm probably going to let you out a little early this evening. But here are some takeaways. There are many ways to run from God's presence, none of which work. None of which work. Why? Listen to Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The heights and the depths. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell at the uttermost part of the sea, if I go all the way out past the horizon, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist is saying, I can't get away. I can't get away. So it's silly to hide from God, but we do all the time. I'm getting ready to offend some people, which should not surprise you. Some of you like to sit on the back pew. Now, for some of you, it's just habits. You've done it for years. You've staked your claim. You've probably carved your initial in the pew, and that's just your place. But you know, when I was uncomfortable with God and when I was lost and coming in, that's where I wanted to sit was in the back. What am I doing? I'm hiding. There's a lot of people hiding in church, even the believers. But God sees everything. There's nowhere to hide. There's no way to hide. So, there are many ways to run from God's presence, none of which work. Another takeaway. When you ignore God, you will end up going down. Somehow, sometime, may not be immediate, may not start off drastic, but somehow, sometime, you'll go down. And it's usually not just a one drop off a cliff. It's this general thing that Jonah did on the way to the sea. Okay, one more. We've talked about this before. Just because it's hard doesn't mean that it's, God's, that it's not God's will. And just because it's easy doesn't mean it is God's will. Jonah was being asked to do something incredibly hard. I mean, physically, he was asked to take a month hike to Nineveh. And the Ninevites were his enemies, and God was asking him to walk into the middle of them. 
just what it, it's like telling the Ukrainians to walk over into Russia. I mean, it, it's the same thing. It was an incredibly hard thing to ask Jonah. And it would have been easy for Jonah to say, well, this can't be God's will. He knows they're, they're our enemies. He wouldn't ask me to go in there without an army. He wouldn't ask me to go in there without any weapons. He wouldn't ask me to do that. It's too hard. Besides, there's surely people closer to that area that could do this. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's God's. It's not God's will. So here's the question. If something is hard or if something is easy, how do you know? Dun, 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 dun. How do you know? You see, we as believers, we like formulas. We really do. We like formulas because if you can give me a formula, then I can control the situation. And I can tell you whether this is right, whether this is wrong, whether this is going to work, whether it's not going to work. I'm more comfortable. Give me the formula. Give me the, the game plan. But then when you tell me, okay, sometimes it's going to be hard and it's going to be God's will, and sometimes it's going to be easy and it's not, I don't have a formula anymore. So what am I supposed to do? Pray about it. Pray for inf instruction, information, through prayer, through other people. Someone else, what do you do? Listen. It's a great answer. Listen. You notice Jonah didn't have to dig up what he was supposed to do. God told him. You have to listen. Be still. Those are two things that are not easy for us. They're really hard for us to be still and listen. You know, you know this verse in Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Isn't it interesting that you understand that God is God when you're still? What did Jonah do as soon as he got the word? He ran. He was everything but still. He, hmm? And he was a prophet, which just goes to show you Having the word prophet or preacher or whatever in front of your name does not make you exempt from messing up. Read the word. Sometimes you have to take the first step. You gather all the information you can from prayer, from the word, from counsel, from others, from everything you can gather. And then, now here's... I don't know if I've told you this story or not. When I went to seminary, you probably heard this. When I went to seminary, I knew I was supposed to go to seminary. I mean, it was really clear that God wanted me to quit my job and go to seminary. It was really hard. I had lots of questions, but it was really clear. But when I got to seminary, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing there. You know? It, it, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, there's places in Scripture where God says, I want you to go, and when you get to where you're going, you'll know. 
you know, that kind of thing. So I knew I was supposed to go to seminary. I get to seminary, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. So I'm thinking, I like to teach. I feel like that's one of my spiritual gifts. I like to teach, so I'll take classes so that one day I can teach in university or Bible college or something. And so that's what I did. Took a really difficult first semester and really aced every class except one. I got a B in one class. And they were hard classes. They were hermeneutics and, and Old Testament survey and church history and Hebrew. And it was, it was really something I should never have taken. But I took them, did good, got the end of that semester, and I thought, I still don't know what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't feel right. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So I took the next semester, and uh, I'm notorious for figuring out directions by chance, so to speak. So I was taking the catalog, and I'm flipping through, and I find marriage and family counseling. I go, hmm, maybe, I don't know. You know, flip through, and didn't see anything else that rang my bell. And so I thought, well, I'm going to take a semester of my electives and just take counseling courses and see. And at the end of that semester, it felt good. It felt right. I wasn't getting any red flags. Everything seemed to make sense. It just, but I couldn't pull the trigger because I didn't know for sure. And we want to know for sure. We don't want to step out and make a mistake. We want to know for sure. And so I agonized. I drove my wife crazy. I drove my friends crazy. I drove the head of the department crazy. And finally, this old head of the department, he was a stodgy little bald-headed guy who had been a pastor and a missionary and a Christian psychologist and wise beyond his years but dry as dirt. And... uh, He either took mercy on me or he was just tired of hearing from me. But one day he said, you know what? I believe that if you're looking and searching and seeking with God in the process, then I've come to believe that his ability to keep you on track is greater than your ability to get off. And I just slumped in the chair inside. It was it. It's what I needed to hear. Was it very theological? I have no idea. But it's what I needed. And then I had to take the step. And when I took the step, things fell in place. You don't always know. But you can't judge it by whether it's hard or whether it's easy. That's a long story that just seemed like it had very little point to it. But does it make sense, though? Okay. Anything else? We're going to stop there. We got all the way to verse 3, so it's going to be a... An amazing ride in the next four weeks. Anything else? I hope you'll stick in with this series. Unfortunately, I think we have more in common with Jonah than we want to admit. There's some fascinating things in the book of Jonah, too. It's just amazing to read. So, if you haven't read it in a while, go read it. It's a short book. Read it just like that. Read it. Read it. Once a week, read it more than that. Let it sink in, and it'll come alive for you, especially as we talk about it later. All right, I'm going to let you go a little bit early. The child care people will love you for that. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful that, that you are not so egotistical that you won't put the mistakes of your prophets in the book. 
that mistakes and broken people and even obstinate people don't throw you off your game. And you put Jonah there. It is a story about not a prophecy, but a prophet. And you put him there to teach us something. You tell us later in the New Testament that all these stories from the Old Testament are there as examples for us. And so there's something there that we need to learn. We've talked about some takeaways. I pray that we will tuck those takeaways in our belt and begin to walk them out in this next week. And I pray you'll prep our hearts and our minds for that one thing that you want to nail deep inside of us and change us with. So, just like you used Jonah in the lives of the Ninevites, you used Jonah in our lives, Father, in these weeks to come. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. We'll see you next week. Maybe we'll get to the fish next week. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs>